You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Three, two, one... But I've worked it out. I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer Jim Calhoun. NASCAR icon Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Herbstreet is on the phone. Welcome in to episode 459 yeah. of the podcast. The Air Tour Sports Podcast. It is Sunday, November 21st, 2021. Maybe November 22nd. I don't know quite yet when this episode will drop. Depends on a few different things. But loaded episode of today's Air Tour Sports Podcast. Hope everybody is doing well. Hope you're not a Florida Gators fan. Tough day to be a Gator, or maybe it's a great day to be a Gator, as Dan Mullen is officially out as the Florida Gators head coach. We will have full reaction. What went wrong? Why I think this was ultimately the right decision? And of course, who are the candidates? Because I think this is a very interesting job in an all of a sudden crowded coaching market. So we're going to have full reaction to Florida. From there, we'll take a break. We will obviously react to the games that happened on the field Saturday. Oregon loses to Utah. What does that mean for the college football playoff picture? What does it mean for Cincinnati, who is now going to be continue to rise up the polls? And of course, uh, Ohio State steamrolling Michigan. We will Michigan State, excuse me. We will wrap with actually a little bit of college basketball as uh, college basketball really is going to heat up this weekend. We have Feast Week, that great week in college basketball where we have all these great tournaments, the Battle for Atlantis, the Maui Invitational. I will be at Gonzaga UCLA, which should be one versus two uh, on Tuesday night. I will be at Gonzaga versus Duke on Friday. So great weekend, a week of college basketball. But let's start with college football. Let's start with the topic of the day. And let's start with just one of the truly both very surprising uh, firings in recent years and not surprising at all, and that is Dan Mullen officially out at Florida. It happened Sunday morning. It happened after another loss on Saturday, this one to Missouri. Greg Knox, the running backs coach, is now the interim head coach. And let me say a few different things. Um, you know, first of all, I am a guy that, in a, as a general rule, um, you know, I, I'm kind of the guy that gives everybody the benefit of the doubt. Give him an extra year. Maybe he can figure it out. Maybe it's... This is one where I actually think Florida made the right decision in making this move when they did, and I am going to explain why momentarily. Before I do, though, I got to readily admit, I don't ever remember a firing or a situation quite like this one going as sideways as quickly as it did with Dan Mullen at Florida. Never forget, this was a guy that in year one won 10 games in Gainesville. He was the toast of the town. He could do no wrong after the Jim McElwain era. 
Year two, he wins 11 games, goes to the Orange Bowl, gets a victory there. Even last year, wins the SEC East title. And what was crazy was you lose Kyle Trask to the NFL, you lose Kyle Pitts to the NFL, you lose Kadarius Toney. And I remember talking all summer long on this podcast of like, it's going to be a process. It's not going to be easy. The idea that Dan Mullen is going to go a 10-2 and two again this year is probably not likely, especially with Alabama on the schedule, and that this looks like probably an 8-4-ish and four-ish type team. What's crazy about it, though, is in week three, they played Alabama really tough. They needed a last-second uh, goal line stand from Alabama for Alabama to win that game, and you think that maybe Florida's actually better than we think. Instead, they, of course, lose a few weeks later to Kentucky, the the, the 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 thing that really started the snowball down the, the, the tracks, if you will, was the loss to LSU when everybody knew that Coach O was ultimately going to get fired. You lose to LSU, you give up a million yards on the ground, LSU sets a rushing record, all of a sudden uh, you're in real hot water and it never really got better from there. Of course, you lose to South Carolina a few weeks ago. Samford, you cannot get stops. Uh, and Missouri, you lose in overtime on Saturday, which finally sealed Dan Mullen's fate. He's on his way out. Now, I told you a minute ago, uh, so, so again, I, I just can't believe how quickly this all happened from uh, mid-September, maybe they're underrated after almost beating Alabama, to now Dan Mullen out about two months later. With that said, I do think it was the right decision for a few reasons, okay? And as I said, I'm a guy, I generally like to give the benefit of the doubt to these guys. I generally like to give a guy an extra year if I think he's probably the right fit. I love what Michigan did with Jim Harbaugh last year. It's worked out really well for them this year as they're once again a 10-win program going into Ohio State this weekend. I actually like what Nebraska did with Scott Frost. I've said it many times. We don't know if Scott Frost is the guy at Nebraska, but this is clearly probably one of the 30 best teams in college football this year, even if the win-loss record doesn't reflect it. Give him another year. We'll find out a year from now if he's not the guy, but starting over from scratch at this point made no sense in my opinion for Nebraska, and I give them credit for uh, deciding to keep Scott Frost in the fold. With that said, I actually think this was the right decision by Florida, and let me explain why. First of all, the program is completely cratering, right? I mean, you look at all the different scenarios that I just laid out. Michigan, last year, COVID, bizarre, weird deal. You go two and four. Okay, let's get through COVID. Let's give it another year. Um, I think Florida was trying to do the same, uh, but, but with Michigan last year, you can kind of explain it. Let's shake up the coaching staff. Let's reduce Jim Harbaugh's salary. You can see the scenario why you should keep Jim Harbaugh for one more year. Scott Frost, his team's competing really hard. But Dan Mullen, everything is going in the complete wrong direction. As I said, 10 wins year one, 11 wins year two. Last year you win the SEC East, but never forget, you lose your last three games last season. You lose as a 24-point favorite at home to LSU in the end of the regular season. You lose to Alabama in the SEC Championship game. No shame there. And then he gets smoked by Oklahoma in the Cotton Bowl, where Dan Mullen basically didn't apologize for it. Basically said, all my best players opted out. We're just preparing for next year. And so that already started things on the wrong trajectory. And now you're 5-6 and six this year, which means that in your last uh, overall, your last 14 games as head coach at the University of Florida. You are now 5-9 and nine overall. You lost 3-end to end last year, 5-6 and six this year. And this is who Dan Mullen has beaten since the beginning, uh, the middle of last year. Like I said, he is now 5-9 and nine in his last 14 games, 2-9 and nine in his last 11 against power conference teams. And this is who Dan Mullen has beaten. Lose three straight to end last season. This year, you beat Florida Atlantic. South Florida, Tennessee, 
Vanderbilt, and Samford, in which you gave up 52 points against Samford, okay? So, it, you know, you're losing to teams that Florida should never lose to. You lose to South Carolina. You lose to Missouri. Um, you know, you lose to Kentucky. And it's no disrespect to those programs, but we know what Florida has been historically. And everything is trending in the wrong direction on the field. Here is the bigger reason why I actually think it was the right decision to fire Dan Mullen. It is because recruiting is completely in the tank right now, and it's not going to get fixed, okay? And we spent a lot of time talking about Dan Mullen, talking about recruiting, talking about his role in recruiting, but essentially, if you missed that, 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 that topic and that conversation a few weeks ago, it really kind of started a snowball after the Georgia game, okay? Dan Mullen has never been known as an elite recruiter. He's kind of been known as the X's and O's guy, the savant, the guy that can get more out of less. Um, but one, he was starting to lose games that if you're the X's and O's savant, you're not supposed to lose, right? If, even if you're the X's and O's savant, even if you're not a great recruiter, you're still supposed to beat Kentucky. You're still supposed to beat South Carolina. You're still supposed to beat Missouri. So that's one. But on top of that, it was a very public apathy to recruiting, which I talked about a few weeks ago. Remember, Dan Mullen was the guy, he was asked about recruiting after the Georgia game. Kirby Smart had been asked about it after the game. He basically said, look, I think I'm a good coach. This is Kirby Smart talking now. He said, I think I'm a great coach, but recruiting is the lifeblood of any program. No coach looks great without great players. I owe everything to my team. That was Kirby Smart's response. Dan Mullen's response, two days later, I don't talk about recruiting during the season. We'll talk about recruiting after the season. And that was when I believe that he really lost the fan base once and for all because when you lose to your rival uh, and you're losing games to teams you're not supposed to, people want answers. And generally, answers come in the form of, we're going to recruit better players. We're going to get out there. We're going to go sign guys. Georgia has difference makers at every position. We need some of those guys. There are ways to answer that question without coming off as a jerk. Instead, it's the exact opposite. Dan Mullen says, we don't talk about recruiting this time of year. And that is what I believe sealed his fate. Because at the end of the day, I believe Florida can compete with all these top teams in the SEC. I believe they can compete with Georgia. I believe they can compete with Alabama. I believe they can compete with Texas A&M. But the difference between Dan Mullen and Florida and those schools is exactly what I just said. Those schools have coaches who love to recruit and where recruiting is the lifeblood of the entire program, okay? Nick Saban is Alabama's most aggressive recruiter. Is he in every home? Does he do all the work? No, but at the end of the day, he is the guy that loves to recruit. He understands the value of recruiting. Kirby Smart is Georgia's best recruiter. I just talked about that. Jimbo Fisher is Texas A&M's best recruiter. I talked about Jimbo Fisher when he was linked to LSU last week saying, I'm going to sign the number one class in the country. I'd be crazy to leave Texas A&M and go somewhere where I got to play all those guys every year because I know the talent coming in. Even Coach O, you can criticize the on-the-field stuff. You could say he didn't do this. You could say he didn't do that. That guy eats, sleeps, and breathes recruiting, and that is how you win in the SEC. That's really how you win at the highest levels of college football. And Dan Mullen not only showed no interest in doing the, the hard work in recruiting, he didn't really show an understanding that he had to change. And so when you look at the recruiting rankings, what is going on in the world of recruiting right now, here's everything you need to know. And I tweeted this out on Saturday. But as things stand right now, and part of this is they did get a couple decommitments. Florida got a couple decommitments over the last couple weeks. Florida, as things stand, they are currently ranked number 23. They have the 23-ranked recruiting class in the country right now. Um, Sunday afternoon as I'm recording here, according to 24-7 Sports. 23rd nationally, which makes them ninth in the SEC. 
That is behind South Carolina under a first-year head coach in Shane Beamer. That is behind Arkansas, who obviously has Sam Pittman. Ninth in the SEC, 23rd overall. They are behind Georgia Tech and right ahead of Iowa State and Rutgers. And so the way that Dan Mullen, if you keep Dan Mullen, was going to get you out of this, he wasn't going to recruit you out of it. Uh, he, you know, the, the, the team on the field is going in the wrong direction, and he can't claim anymore that he's the schematic genius because even if you're the schematic genius and you can do more with less, you're still losing to Missouri, South Carolina, and Kentucky. So with that said, that is really ultimately why I am okay with the decision of Florida to fire Dan Mullen. It is because of the fact that he just had a complete unwillingness to admit that recruiting was the lifeblood. He needed to be more committed to recruiting, and his staff needed to be more committed to recruiting. And this is why I don't think you could keep him. If I could sum up everything I've said about Dan Mullen, this is why I believe Sunday was the right time to make the move. A 2023 class is in, uh, the 2022 class, this coming senior class in high school, is in a lot of trouble, okay? As I just said, you're ranked number 23 in the country. You're ranked ninth in the SEC. Georgia Tech has a better recruiting class than you. South Carolina has a better recruiting class than you. And Rutgers is closing in on a better recruiting class than you. And obviously, this class cannot be really in any way, shape, or form salvaged. You can still get players through the portal, all that good stuff. But this class cannot be salvaged. Here's why you can't keep Dan Mullen, though. It's because if you keep Dan Mullen for one more year, you know what happens? You're not recruiting in 2023 as well. One, you already have a coach that is not willing to do the work in recruiting, and now you have a situation where everybody knows you're on the hot seat coming into 2023, and there is just no way that Dan Mullen is going to have success on the recruiting trail, even if he picked up you know, his effort and his intensity and he hired the right assistant coaches. It's going to be hard to sign kids for 2023 knowing what's going on. And so by keeping Dan Mullen this year, you're really losing two recruiting classes going forward. 2022 is already a wash. It's going to be hard to maintain any sort of semblance regardless of who the next head coach is. But you keep Dan Mullen, you lose 2022, and you're going to be way behind the eight ball in 2023 as well. And so while I don't love the idea of getting rid of a guy because of a bad six, seven-week stretch, the record was going in the wrong direction. As I said, 2-9 and nine in his last 11 games against Power 5 opponents, the only wins Tennessee at home and Vanderbilt at home. Um, and I, I, the recruiting was the reason that you had to get rid of him. The big question now is who is next at Florida? And what I would say is to, by the way, with Dan Mullen, I don't know what his future is. A couple things on Dan Mullen really quick before we get to the recruit, uh, to, to the next head coach. A couple things with Dan Mullen. One, I do believe that he can be a successful head coach at the Power 5 FBS level. I just think he has to do it at a place that isn't Florida and certainly isn't in the SEC. As I said, he's a scheme guy. He's not a recruiting guy. He's not a guy that is going to go, in, you know, go sign the number one class in the country and in the SEC at any of these great jobs, not just in the SEC, but Ohio State, USC, Oklahoma, Texas, uh, uh, Clemson, Florida State. You need to be committed to recruiting. He is not. But do I think he could have success in a couple different places? Do I think he could be maybe the best offensive coordinator, frankly, in all of college football? I do. Does he want to do that? I don't know. He has a $12 million buyout coming to him, $6 million guaranteed right now today as he gets fired. I don't know if he wants to be an offensive coordinator. But I could also see the scenario where he is a really good coach in, like, the ACC. Um, I don't think he's—I think he's done in the SEC. He did his Mississippi State thing. He did the Florida thing. I think he is done ultimately in the SEC— uh, I just don't think it's the right spot for him. 
But do I think he could be a good ACC head coach? Do I think he could take one of these programs that isn't very good right now and get them to the 8-9 win level? I think he could. I think they could. Now, none of these ACC jobs, except for Virginia Tech, which is currently open, appear to be on the precipice of opening. But could I see him at a Georgia Tech? Could I see him at a, 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 you know, a Louisville, at an NC State, at a place like that? I could, and I could actually see him being pretty good. So that's what that's my kind of uh, you know post mortem on Dan Mullen. I don't wish anybody ill will. I don't hope that a guy gets fired, but I ultimately do think that this was really the right decision for Florida at this exact moment, and it was a decision that they frankly had to make. All right, and so that with that all said and that all done, let's switch gears and let's talk about the candidates at the University of Florida because let's be honest, I mean, that's kind of what you come here for this kind of stuff for, right? Like like we did the postmortem on Dan Mullen, and nobody wishes him ill will. Nobody wanted to see him fail, not even Florida fans. Florida fans wanted success with Dan Mullen, but it clearly didn't work. It was clearly time for a change, and let's get to some of the candidates at the University of Florida. And what I'll say is it's a very interesting opening. They are obviously way behind the eight ball with LSU, way behind the eight ball with USC, but at the same time, All the good candidates are still coaching. They're going to be coaching at least through this weekend. And so Florida has time to make a good hire and the right hire, but it's time to get moving. I don't know if it's a better or worse job than LSU. I think it has some inherent advantages. I think it has some inherent disadvantages. Obviously the same with USC as well, but let's get into some of the candidates. The first candidate, I think it's the most obvious one. I think it's Lane Kiffin at Ole Miss. And listen, I, I know that a couple things with Lane Kiffin. I know that a million years ago, he kind of did this at USC and that at Tennessee and this with the Oakland Raiders, and some people are sour on him. What I see right now is a guy that has won nine games at Ole Miss that is not easy to do. Um, a guy that is could potentially win 10 games at Ole Miss this uh, with a win against Mississippi State. And I think the big question is, at some point, does Lane Kiffin look around and say, it might be time for me to consider something else. First of all, Matt Corral, his starting quarterback, is headed to the NFL. They announced on Saturday that Saturday was the final home game for Matt Corral at Ole Miss. So he will leave. Ole Miss will be without a a, a marquee quarterback. And I just think Lane Kiffin has to look around and say, do I really, without Matt Corral, want to bang my head against the wall in the SEC West, go head-to-head every single year with Nick Saban, with Jimbo Fisher, who I just beat for the record, with whoever LSU coaches, whoever LSU hires, or do I want to go somewhere where the path is a little bit easier and a program with more potential? And this is no disrespect to, to Ole Miss, but I think we all know that Florida, a school that has won three national championships in the last 25, 26, 27 years, has a higher upside than Ole Miss going forward. I think the other thing that 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 why this makes so much sense is a few reasons. One, he's having the success at Ole Miss. Two, I will say, uh, while the recruiting hasn't been great at Ole Miss, this guy proved that he can recruit his butt off when he was at USC. Multiple top ten classes there. He is going to be bring the recruiting energy that uh, that Florida fans want and need. And I believe that he will sign top classes right away. I talk about it all the time. In the portal era, he is going to sign elite quarterbacks. He is going to sign elite wide receivers. He's going to sign elite running backs and tight ends through the portal, but then also through regular recruiting. And so why he makes sense for Florida is for a few reasons. One, he's going to recruit his butt off. Two, the ceiling of the program is just so much higher than it is uh, at, at, at Ole Miss. And then I think on top of that, the thing that Florida has really going with Lane Kiffin is the fact that I don't think he's really a candidate at LSU or USC. He's not a candidate at USC for the obvious reasons, right? Like, was there, didn't work out, got fired. I think some of their fans would actually love to have him back. That ain't happening. 
LSU, they have a bunch of off-the-field issues, Title IX, uh, NCAA rules violations. Not saying Lane Kiffin has done anything that bad, but he has had NCAA rules violations in his past. I don't know that he's a candidate at LSU. And so you now, if you're the University of Florida, you have a coach that recruits. You have a coach that puts up points. We know Florida fans love their offense. Steve Spurrier, fun and gun. Urban Meyer, Tim Tebow, Percy Harvin. Dan Mullen, say what you want about his defenses, but his offense has always scored. Florida fans like points. Florida fans like offense. Lane Kiffin makes a ton of sense. The only thing working against Florida is a couple, well, two things really. One, Ole Miss is going to do everything they can to keep them. And you talk about a great time to be a coach that wants to stay where you are. We saw Mel Tucker get nine and a half a year. Ole Miss is going to do everything they can to keep him. And so that's one. Maybe he just wants to stay at Ole Miss. Maybe he's happy. Maybe he doesn't want to leave there. Two, the other thing, which I think could be a bigger factor, there's a possibility that the University of Miami opens up here in the next few weeks. And I do think Lane Kiffin could sit there and say, do I want to go to the SEC East where the path is easier, but I'd still have to go through Kirby Smart every year and then Nick Saban to get to the playoff? Or do I want to see if Miami opens, which of course is in the ACC, different division than Clemson. You don't even play Clemson every year. That's really the only threat to get to the college football playoff. I think Florida can probably pay a little better. I think it's probably a little bit of a better job, but being in the SEC could work against it. But Lane Kiffin, to me, is the obvious first choice, no doubt about it, guy you have to call. The second guy who I think is starting to make more sense at Florida than other places is James Franklin. And I know the negative with James Franklin. He's 7-4 and four right now. They had a bad loss to Illinois. But the one thing that I, I think James Franklin at Florida works for a few different reasons than it would at USC or LSU. At USC and LSU, the big problem with James Franklin is he's 7-4. and four, He just lost to Illinois. The thing that James Franklin has going for him at Florida is a few things. One, the guy loves to recruit. And I think that is how he sells getting this job. Look, I was in the same division as Ohio State. I couldn't get over the hump, but I can't recruit the same players as Ohio State. Is that true? Is it not true? I don't know, but you can sell that. What you can then sell in the press conference is nobody loves recruiting more than me. I got to get to work. I got to get into every high school in the state of Florida, and I got to sign me some dudes. And I do think that that idea, the idea of I love to recruit, I'm here to recruit, I'm here to build a national championship program, I think that works at Florida. I also think the fact that he's had success at Penn State, multiple 10-11 win seasons, and I also think the fact that he's had success in the SEC East. Florida fans are familiar with him. They saw him go to Vanderbilt. They saw him win nine games twice at Vanderbilt. And I think Florida fans could talk themselves into, you know what? That guy, if that guy can win nine games at Vanderbilt, I don't care what he did at Penn State. That guy can come here, recruit his butt off, and win at the highest level here. Can he? Can he not? I don't know. I think James Franklin is starting to lose buzz at LSU. I think he's starting to lose buzz at USC. But he is a guy that still, in my mind, makes a ton of sense for Florida for those three reasons. He has had success at Penn State, even if it's not this year. He's going to recruit his butt off. He's had success not only in the SEC, but in the SEC East at Vanderbilt. The third guy, and he's an interesting one. I've talked about him a lot over the last couple months. That is Billy Napier, the head coach at Louisiana, formerly Louisiana Lafayette. And I know a school like Florida, they don't want to go the group of five route, but this guy is about as good as it gets when it comes to the group of five. This is a guy, they just beat Liberty at Hugh Freeze this weekend, so that's worth noting there. Um, but with that win, they have now won 10 in a row. They are 10-1, and one, and uh, this is now their third straight 10-win season at Louisiana. 11-3 and three in 2019, 10-1 in 2020. 10 and 1 in 2021 going for 11 and 1 next week and obviously if they win their conference they would be 12 and 1 to end the regular season. 
What I would also say about Billy Napier that's really interesting, this is a guy that's not only winning at the highest level, uh, he is a another former Saban disciple. He was on the same coaching staff as Lane Kiffin, Kirby Smart, Mel Tucker, Mario Cristobal back in 2015. And so I think he brings the discipline and the structure and the accountability that Dan Mullen lacked, right? Like Dan Mullen was aloof. He didn't like to talk. He showed up in the Darth Vader outfit at the press conference that Eli Drinkowitz made fun of on Saturday. And I do think Billy Napier, he's mature, he's an adult, he's about no frills, he is just focused on winning football games. I think that'll play really well at the University of Florida. What I also think is really interesting, he has turned down a lot of jobs and a lot of opportunities for other jobs waiting for a job like this. I've talked about it before, but this was a guy that Mississippi State was interested in two years ago when they went after Mike Leach. This was a guy that South Carolina was interested in a few years ago, or last year when they hired Shane Beamer. And this is the guy that has waited, has stayed at Louisiana, and the belief in the coaching industry is that he is a guy that is waiting for that elite job to open up, the job where you can compete for national championships. He didn't just want to get to the SEC. He wants to get to the SEC in a place where you can win at the highest level, and Florida is certainly that job. The only negative with Billy Napier that I can think of, one, some, some fans don't ever be happy with a group of five coach. I think it's nonsense. Three straight 10-win seasons, Nick Saban coaching tree. Uh, he recruits really well for the group of five level, has been really active in the portal. I think that helps. The one negative, if you want to call it as such, um, he has been very public, that or not public, but reports have gotten out that he is waiting for, um, he is waiting for the LSU job to, for a final decision to be made at LSU. Essentially, he is in Louisiana. He's right down the road from Baton Rouge. And indirectly, uh, uh, he has told Scott Woodward, uh, I've mentioned this name before, but Jordy Collada, a, a, uh, a radio host down in Baton Rouge, really plugged in at LSU, said on his radio show not long ago that Billy Napier has told the AD at LSU, I'm not making any decision, any move, until you guys decide what you want to do at LSU. So is he going to wait for LSU? I don't know. Florida's the kind of job, they're not going to wait for you, and I don't think you can wait for them. If Florida puts this job on the table, I think Billy Napier is going to have to take it, but that is a report that is out there from Jordy Collada, who knows LSU as well as anybody, that Billy Napier is not going anywhere or doing anything until he knows what happens at LSU. Let's rip through some of the other coaching candidates. I mentioned, of course, Lane Kiffin and James Franklin. Bill O'Brien's another one. Um, so Bill O'Brien's interesting, right? Bill O'Brien, former Penn State head coach, former Houston, Texas head coach. Um, I, he's been linked to like every job. I don't believe there is as much interest in Bill O'Brien as a lot of other reporters have made it out to be. You got to remember in cases like this, there's a lot of agents that are trying to float names, float names that make sense for individual jobs. And Bill O'Brien's agent clearly wants him to get another opportunity at one of these big time head coaching jobs. And so I don't believe there is as much interest in Bill O'Brien as everybody is making out to be. But at the same time, what I would say is this. One, there's a lot of really good jobs that are starting to open up. And at some point, you're going to run out of enough candidates to fill all of them. And so do I think Bill O'Brien is anybody's top choice? I don't. But I heard Matt Jones from Kentucky Sports Radio, who knows Kentucky as well as anybody, say Mark Stoops has been contacted by LSU, but Bill O'Brien is ahead of Mark Stoops on that list. And so you know that LSU might be starting to move down the list a little bit. Bill O'Brien may be there. And if it doesn't work out at LSU, maybe it makes sense for them to go after him at Florida. Again, he has the offensive background. And the final thing I would say about Bill O'Brien, look, I know the way things ended 
at uh, with the Houston Texans were bad. I know that everybody thinks he's uh, like the worst. Listen, this guy with the Houston Texans in four of his final full season, four of his final five full seasons with the with the Houston Texans. He went to the playoffs, and he won the division, okay? And so for all the talk about how bad he was in the NFL, four playoff appearances in his last five full seasons. Now, what undid Bill O'Brien, the head coach, was Bill O'Brien, the GM, the guy that traded DeAndre Hopkins, the guy that uh, you know made Deshaun Watson unhappy, all that stuff. But Bill O'Brien, the head coach, was fine. It was Bill O'Brien, the GM, that screwed him over. And so, again, I don't think he's a top candidate anywhere, but if there was ever a place that kind of made sense – uh, or if this, there was ever a time that kind of made sense, I do believe this might be the year strictly because I just think all of these jobs are going to open up. Really quickly, a couple other names. Bob Stoops is kind of interesting here. So for people who don't really know the history of all this, Bob Stoops, before he was the legendary you know, two-decade head coach at, at Oklahoma, he was Steve Spurrier's defensive coordinator at Florida during their championship runs of the mid to late 1990s. He then goes to Oklahoma and wins a national championship, but he has real ties to Florida, and he was a guy, he actually almost took the Florida job when Steve Spurrier left. I remember back in the day, like, watching SportsCenter in the morning, and it was like Bob Stoops' watch. Is he going to go to Florida? Is he going to stay at Oklahoma? And so I don't think Bob Stoops at this point is going to come out of retirement for many jobs, but the possibility exists that this could be the one that he would be interested in. Is Bob Stoops a candidate there? 61 years old, that feels old. At the same time, Nick Saban is 70 and still rolling. It just comes down to, does Bob Stoops have any real interest in returning to college football? Because if he does, this is a job that makes sense. A couple other names. Uh, you know, listen, I think Mark Stoops makes sense. I don't think he's at the top of the list. I don't know if he'd take it to stay in the SEC East. I know that, obviously, I just talked about Matt Jones and his reporting, and I think Matt said something to the effect of, um, you know, there, there's five or six jobs in the country that Mark Stoops would seriously consider. LSU is one. We know that some of the big Midwest jobs are others. Is Florida one? I don't know, and I don't know that kind of his mentality, defense, running game, and I know he would recruit different types of players and all that stuff. I don't know that he makes a ton of sense at Florida, but those are the six that immediately come to mind for me. Lane Kiffin, James Franklin, Billy Napier, Bill O'Brien, and Bob Stoops. That's actually only five. Mark Stoops, I guess, technically is six. Mario Cristobal, I think if he's going to come back to the SEC footprint, I know he's from Florida. I would think Miami, he'd be waiting for Miami more than Florida. So to me, those are the five, really, is Lane Kiffin, is James Franklin, who I think would absolutely take that in a heartbeat, Bill O'Brien, Billy Napier, and Bob Stoops. Woo! A lot of Florida talk to open the show. That's what I want to do. I want to take a quick break. I do want to come back, and I do want to talk about uh, just the weekend that was in college football. Crazy, crazy, crazy weekend. Oregon, speaking of Mario Cristobal, takes the loss. What does that mean for them? What does it mean for Cincinnati? I will be right back. We'll talk a little bit about that Ohio State butt kicking, and then a little bit of Feast Week. I will be right back. All right, everybody, I'm back. Going to be back, going to be back. And I do want to switch gears. I do want to go onto the field. And I do want to talk about the single biggest result of Saturday in college football. Comes from the beautiful city of Salt Lake City, Utah. Although I've never actually been. I just hear it's beautiful. But the beautiful city of Salt Lake City, Utah, where the Utah Utes 
really good football team. We're hosting the number three team in college football, the Oregon Ducks. Oregon actually came to, came in as a slight underdog, but at the same time, I don't think any of us saw what, at, what no, none of us saw coming what actually happened on Saturday night in Salt Lake City, the beautiful city that I've never been to, but I hear is beautiful. That was an epic beatdown for the ages as Utah just destroys Oregon. Final score, 38-7. Utah now in the driver's seat to go to the Pac-12 championship. Uh, Oregon, just a crushing, devastating, awful loss for this program. And so let's get into it. Let's talk about it because I think this result is both very surprising and not surprising at all. And so let's discuss, let's debate, let's talk. And why I would say it's not surprising is because, let's be blunt, I told you on Friday's show that I could see this coming. First of all, the odds makers, DraftKings Sportsbook, had Utah as a slight two-and-a-half, three-point favorite, which means that the odds makers thought that whether Utah was the better team or not, being at home, the advantage went to Utah. And at the same time, I've been telling you for weeks, something is not right with this Oregon team. They, they, it was justified to have them number three. They do have that win over Ohio State. But you could just tell if you were watching them that something was not right. And it was kind of ironic for this result to happen for Oregon on the same day that Ohio State, who again, Oregon beat back in September, is very clearly hitting their stride. We're going to talk about Ohio State in a minute. But listen, Ohio State lost in week two to Oregon at home. It was a devastating loss. But every single week since then, you could see Ohio State building and building and building and getting more confident. And the defense is getting better. And the run game is getting more better. And C.J. Stroud is getting more better where now he's maybe the Heisman Trophy favorite every single week since that game Ohio State has seemingly got better and then on the other hand you have Oregon who has basically been living on borrowed time from that game where again they deserve to be number three because you can't have them below Ohio State because they beat them head to head but there wasn't a single person in the country that thought that Oregon was one a better team than Ohio State right now or the number three team in college football I've been telling you this for weeks, and I'm not the only one. I'm not trying to take credit. I saw this coming when no one else did. No, Oregon was a slight underdog. We get that. But at the same time, here are Oregon's results since they beat Ohio State, and this shows you just how much they were kind of playing with fire and they were eventually going to get burnt. Week after Ohio State, they beat Stony Brook, FCS team. Okay, whatever. After that, they play Arizona, the worst team in the Pac-12 and arguably the worst Power 5 team in college football. On one hand, they win 41-19. Seems like a nice three-touchdown victory, 22 points, final score. Except here's the thing. Even in that game, and that game was back in September, by the way, two weeks after the Ohio State game, they were only up 24-19 going into the fourth quarter till they blew them away late. Following week, they go to Stanford. They lose at Stanford, so they take that first loss. But again, teams lose one game you're going to get into the playoff if you continue to win but even after that Stanford loss like like you expect when a team takes a loss as bad as that Stanford game is and how about this Stanford has not won a game since they beat Oregon you expect that team to bounce back after taking a bad loss recover get better and start playing really good football again again it's what Ohio State has done throughout the year it's what Michigan did bouncing back from that Michigan State loss a few weeks ago 
Instead, Oregon has been flatlining since then. Seven-point win over Cal. I get it. Their offensive coordinator, Joe Moorhead, was not available. He was unhealthy. We're glad that he's back at 100%, but he was not available for that game. You beat UCLA by three. You score 34 points, which feels good on paper, until you see the fact that UCLA gives up 30 to everybody. You hold on for dear life in that game. You beat Colorado. That was probably the one really good game that you've played uh, since that uh, since that Ohio State game. You went 52-29, to and a lot of those points for Colorado were late in the game. But that's still a 4-7 and Colorado team. Then you play Washington, you win by 10 in what was ultimately Jimmy Lake's last game before you get fired. And then again, last week, Washington State, you win at home. But again, it was a tie game going into halftime, and you pull away late. So you go back and look at the totality of what Oregon has done since they beat Ohio State. It is a lot of close games where they pull away in the third and fourth quarter. This is not a team that was peaking. This is not a team that was playing its best football. And it felt like a matter of if not when this team was ultimately going to lose. With that said, though, what I would also say is that while it was not surprising that they ultimately took this loss as a slight favorite, a uh, slight underdog, excuse me, what was shocking was how it happened. Like I told you, Utah was about a three, three and a half, two and a half point favorite somewhere in that range. Nobody saw 38 to seven coming in just a completely epic beatdown from Utah. Now, one, I think we have to give Utah credit. They are playing some really good football right now. They have now won seven of their last eight games overall. With the win, they have clinched a spot in the Pac-12 championship game where they'll frankly probably play Oregon again two weeks from now in Las Vegas. But one, I think we have to give them credit for the way that they played took advantage of Oregon's mistakes, but to me, the story of the game was just Oregon coming out completely unprepared, completely flat, mistake after mistake. Uh, they miss a field goal early that would have cut it to 7-3. to three. From there, they give up a punt on the final punt return for a touchdown, I should say, on the final play of the first half, which basically ended the game before it was even halftime. It was 28 nothing at that point, and more importantly, Oregon just got punked at the line of scrimmage, okay? And what you need to know about Mario Cristobal, what you need to know about this program is that since Mario Cristobal, the Oregon head coach, has gotten there, his big thing has been, we are going to build this team from the inside out. It starts with line play, it starts with physicality, it starts with toughness. Mario Cristobal, a former offensive uh, lineman for the University of Miami, won a national championship there, may have won two national championships there, but everything's about physicality, everything's about toughness. We got Penny Suell, who was the fir first round pick of the Detroit uh, Lions last year, I almost said Detroit Pistons. You have Kayvon Thibodeau, maybe the number one overall pick this year on the defensive line everything's about physicality and toughness uh, just one problem Utah completely punked them on Saturday night almost 500 yards of total offense for Utah or 400 yards of total offense for Utah excuse me Oregon held to 294 yards and even that's deceptive because most of it was through the air most of it after the game was done and how about this? They finished with 63 yards rushing on 23 attempts. That's less than three yards per carry. So that was the surprising part. The final result, the total number, uh, the total differential in this game, and the fact that Oregon, a program that has been built on physicality and toughness, completely got punked in this game. And so that's what happened. That's how it went down. Congratulations to Utah. And obviously for Oregon, it is a devastating, devastating, devastating loss. What I want to do now is talk about what that Oregon loss means for the college football playoff picture because I think there are two really big ramifications as we are coming down the home stretch here and we are starting to get a better picture of what this college football playoff could look like, the four teams that could ultimately make it. The first ramification 
The Pac-12 is officially eliminated once again from the college football playoff conversation. This is now the fifth year in a row that we will not have a single Pac-12 team in the college football playoff. Oregon made it the first year in 2014. Washington made it in the third year in 2016. Since then, zero Pac-12 teams. And I think, look, there is another day, another time, another conversation to be had in the general big picture of the Pac-12. But what I would say is a couple things on this current drought. One, I think USC's got to get this higher right. They absolutely have to get this higher right because I talk about it all the time. But USC being down makes the Pac-12 feel down as a whole. Okay, Think about the ACC. Think about ACC football. For years, if we're being perfectly honest, ACC football kind of stunk. They were kind of terrible. They were kind of awful. But they had Clemson propping them up, and Clemson was so good that it didn't matter how bad the rest of the conference was because Clemson was that team that was elevating the rest of the conference, and USC is still the school that is best positioned to do that in the Pac-12. They have the most resources. They have the biggest fan base. They have the most support. They have the most interest. They are the team in the Pac-12 that when they are playing, you turn them on because you know they got a bunch of pros. They got a bunch of guys that that are going to be difference makers on Sunday, and USC needs to get back to being that USC because that will be good for the entire Pac-12 and, of course, USC as a whole. The other thing with the Pac-12, I'll just say really quick because I want to get to the second ramification because I think it's bigger and I think it's more important. The second ramification we'll get to momentarily, but the second reason that the Pac-12 is not going to have a college football playoff representative, some of this does fall on Oregon. And I don't want to start to say that Mario Cristobal is wasting talent and he's overrated. Like, this isn't about Mario Cristobal being overrated. What he's doing at Oregon is absolutely unbelievable. He is continuing to build this program into a true college football juggernaut. But at the same time, This is the second time in three years, the second time in in full college football seasons that Oregon has entered November with a chance to make the college football playoff and they've fallen flat on their face on the road against teams that they should beat based on talent. And I know Oregon was beat up coming into this game. They don't have C.J. Verdell. They've lost a bunch of guys over the last couple weeks. But you're Oregon. You're the face of the Pac-12 right now. You have the best team, the most talent. You're recruiting at the highest level. And this is now the second time in three years that you went into a late game in November with a lot of meaning on the road and you could not get the win. 2019, you go on the road, you lose to Arizona State with Herm Edwards. But that was the year you had Justin Herbert, who, as it turns out, was was one of the is now one of the top young quarterbacks in the NFL. And he essentially wasted Justin Herbert's year there because they were a really, really good team. And on top of that, you had Penny Sewell blocking for him, a future first-round top 10 NFL offensive tackle as well. This year, I don't think they were as talented. As I said, I believe they've been kind of holding on since that Ohio State win. But still. You got the potential number one pick in the draft in Kayvon Thibodeau, the defensive end uh, from Southern California. And on top of that, you also have the most talent in this league. And this is a game, if you are trying to build Oregon into a national championship type, like at some point you got to win this game, I guess is the point I'm trying to say. But the Pac-12 has now been eliminated from the college football playoff conversation once again, the fifth straight year that the Pac-12 will not have a representative in the college football playoff. All right, now let's get to the second big takeaway from Saturday's games in terms of what it means for the college football playoff. And the second big takeaway, it is becoming increasingly harder to find a scenario where Cincinnati, the Cincinnati Bearcats, get left out of the college football playoff conversation. Now, to be clear, and when I say conversation, I mean the actual college football playoff. Now, to be clear, 
I don't know if I actually believe that, but this is what a lot of people told me, and it is based off some very simple mental math. Here was the top six coming into Saturday before all of the wins and losses that happened. Georgia was one, Alabama was two, Ohio State or Oregon was three, Ohio State four, Cincinnati five, Michigan six. Well, Oregon loses at three, so they're out, and the assumption is you just move everybody up a spot. Ohio State to three, uh, uh, Cincinnati to four, Michigan to five, and then everything else will shake itself out from there. Alabama plays Georgia. We all think Georgia's going to win, so that'll eliminate Alabama. Uh, Ohio State and Michigan play this weekend. That will eliminate one of those teams. And so the idea is all Cincinnati has to do is keep winning, and they will end up in the college football playoff because of the six teams right now that are in great position to make the college football playoff, the five teams really that I just mentioned, Georgia, Alabama, Cincinnati, Ohio State, and Michigan, four of those teams will play each other at some point in the next two weeks. Here is why I am not sold, though, that Cincinnati actually has a place that is completely locked into the college football playoff. It is because of the fact that the college football playoff at the end of the day is still a subjective thing. It is still decided by human beings, and we have to be honest about this. These human beings have an interest in certain teams getting into the college football playoff. I'm not saying it's rigged. I'm not saying that uh, Alabama can do whatever or Notre Dame can do whatever or this team can do whatever, but let's be honest. It is a subjective thing. This is not the NFL. It is not determined by win-loss record. It is not determined by if you win your division, you're in. If you make a wild card, you're in. This is the tiebreaker here. It is a bunch of guys and girls getting together in a room and picking who they think are the four best teams. And while it'd be great for them to just sit there and say, well, Cincinnati's obviously in, remember, it is, again, a TV product, a TV entity. Human beings are involved, and the human beings are going to want the biggest brands, the sexiest names, and I still don't think, and Cincinnati fans, don't be mad at me. I'm just telling you how I really feel. This is no disrespect to your program. If it was up to me, they would be in already. They would. All they got to do is win, and they're in. But you know those human beings want the big brand name teams. They want Georgia. They want Ohio State. They want Michigan if there's a way. They want Alabama. They want Oklahoma. They want in a different year, USC, Florida State, Miami, uh, whoever. They don't want Cincinnati. But what I will also say is, just looking at the results, it is becoming increasingly uh, more difficult to find the scenario where Cincinnati gets left out. I don't want to spend a ton of time on this, but let me explain what is going on, what are the current scenarios, what has to happen for Cincinnati to get into the playoff. The good news, things are really breaking nicely for Cincinnati, and Saturday may have been the best day of them all. First of all, Oregon loses. The Pac-12 is out of the college football playoff conversation. Oregon, as I just said a minute ago, they are the, the, the only team at this point with two losses in the Pac-12. Everybody else has three, and there is just no way that a two-loss Oregon will re-jump Cincinnati in these college football playoff rankings because really outside of that Ohio State game, there really isn't all that much on their resume, and there's nobody else in the Pac-12 that has anything close to a college football playoff resume. I do think Utah's probably the favorite to win the Pac-12 going forward. They already have three losses at best they can finish nine and three so that's great for Cincinnati Oregon is out the Pac-12 is out what also happened and I don't think anybody's really talking about it Wake Forest took a second loss on Saturday meaning that everybody in the ACC is eliminated now to be clear I don't think that anybody in the ACC I don't think the committee was going to move a one loss Wake Forest ahead of Cincinnati but I don't think that it was inconceivable either well, Wake Forest loses to Clemson. 
ironically, when it's all said and done, Clemson might be the best team in the ACC. They're at eight and three right now. For all the angst about how bad they are, they're currently eight and three. They play South Carolina to go to nine and three. They just beat Wake Forest, maybe the best team in the conference. And all of a sudden, you look up. The ACC has every team has at least two losses. Nobody from the ACC is getting in. So the Pac-12 is out. The ACC is out. The other great thing for Notre for Cincinnati that just it could not have broken any better. They beat Notre Dame, who is really good, and Notre Dame keeps winning. And I don't think you can undersell how important it is for Cincinnati to not only have the mega win over Notre Dame, because remember, last year they were really good. They were undefeated. They had no quality wins out of conference because there was no out-of-conference games. This year they have a win at Notre Dame. And as it turns out, Notre Dame is currently ranked number eight in the most recent poll, and their only loss is to Cincinnati. And so this is the very weird circumstance where there is no way, and listen, the committee's going to do some funky stuff. They will not move a one-loss Notre Dame with a head-to-head loss to Cincinnati ahead of Cincinnati. And so this is great for Cincinnati. This is great with what's going on because, again, the Pac-12 is out after Oregon loses. The ACC is definitely out after Wake Forest loses, even though I think that they were already out before that. And now Notre Dame is out. And so now, you, now Notre Dame isn't out. I take that back. But Notre Dame will not get in ahead of Cincinnati. So now we start to look at the playoff picture. And again, it crystallizes to what I just said a minute ago. If Alabama, If Georgia beats Alabama, they're obviously in. Even if they don't, obviously Georgia will be in as well. The winner of Ohio State, Michigan, will be in, and then it gets murky from there, and Cincinnati appears to be in the driver's seat for that third spot, especially if Georgia beats Alabama. Now here's where it gets tricky, here's where it gets complicated, and here's where I still think Cincinnati is in good shape, but I do think Cincinnati can use a little tiny bit of help along the way. So Cincinnati is basically, the way I see it, there are three spot three teams for two spots at this point we assume that whoever wins the SEC is in we assume it's Georgia we assume whoever wins the Big Ten is in let's just say for the sake of argument it's Ohio State um, and then it comes down to a th- a two loss Alabama team a one loss Big 12 team and an undefeated Cincinnati what I would say is obviously if Alabama beats Georgia then I think it would be one loss Alabama, one loss Georgia, one loss Ohio State. I hope this isn't getting too confusing, by the way. I'm just trying to give you the full 360-degree view of what is going on with this college football playoff race. Um, But let's assume Alabama loses to Georgia. Then Georgia's in, Ohio State, the Big Ten champ is in. We're going to assume it's Ohio State. And then it becomes down to Cincinnati, a one-loss Big 12 champ, or a two-loss Alabama for the final spot. First of all, Cincinnati, the best thing you can do is root for continued chaos in the Big 12, okay? So what is going on in the Big 12 that you need to know right now is this. The Big 12 currently has two teams left with one loss. Um, They are both very far behind Cincinnati. Oklahoma State is ranked number nine. Oklahoma is ranked number 13. But those two teams actually play each other this weekend. So the good news for Cincinnati is you are ultimately potentially competing for with a Big 12 team with one loss for a playoff spot. The good news is there's two teams left with one loss. The good news is they play this weekend, meaning that coming out of this weekend, there is only going to be one team from the Big 12 with one loss. So one of those teams is eliminated after this weekend, Oklahoma State or Oklahoma. The interesting thing is what happens the following week in the Big 12 championship game. 
if Oklahoma beats Oklahoma State this weekend, Oklahoma will actually play Oklahoma State for a second time in the Big 12 Championship. And then also, if Oklahoma State beats Oklahoma this weekend, Oklahoma would be eliminated. They would play Baylor in the Big 12 Championship. So for Cincinnati, the best case scenario, one of those teams loses this weekend, and then the other one loses in the Big 12 Championship game. Because if it does come down to, hypothetically, a one-loss Big 12 team versus an undefeated Cincinnati team, I know it's easy to look at the rankings right now and say there is no way that that a team could possibly be moved past Cincinnati. Well, guess what? I don't think it's crazy, and here's why. Oklahoma State or Oklahoma will probably have to beat two top 15 teams to get to a Big 12 championship. Oklahoma would have to play Oklahoma State twice. Oklahoma State's currently ranked number nine. If they lose, they probably fall to 12-13. If Oklahoma Oklahoma State beats Oklahoma, then they would have to play Baylor. If they beat both those teams, that's two more wins over top 15 or so teams. And I don't think it's inconceivable that Oklahoma State goes all the way from, say, number number nine where they are right now to number four with two more impressive wins especially since Cincinnati is playing a very bad East Carolina team this weekend so best case scenario for for Cincinnati both of those big 12 teams suffer a loss in one of the next two weeks what I would also say I have not given up and I'm the only person in America that feels this way and I hope this segment makes sense but I'm so fired up and I'm just trying to lay everything out for you Um, I am the only person in America that doesn't think that it's inconceivable that the committee will put in a two-loss Alabama over an undefeated Cincinnati. And I tweeted it out, and a ton of you said, you're crazy, you're out of your mind. But come on, let's be real here. One, this is a TV product. Two, we are already seeing the Bama excuse-making of, oh my God, well, they would be favored over, how can you leave them out? They would be favored over everybody on a neutral field. Yeah, who cares? And, uh, you know, uh, whoever, the... uh, uh, the, the the New England Patriots were a, a, a touchdown underdog against the Los Angeles Rams, greatest show on turf. Like, I hate this concept that, oh, well, they would, be, they would be favored on a neutral field. Yeah, who cares? At some point, you have to play the games. But I can still see the scenario. And I'm telling you, and part of this is, it is the media. It's media-driven. We know who owns the college football playoff. Can you not see the scenario where, let's say, Oklahoma wins out. Oklahoma beats Oklahoma State twice to win the Big 12. That would mean they would be 12-1 and with a very sexy uh, Heisman Trophy candidate-type quarterback in Caleb Williams. I don't think he's winning it, but whatever. Then it's down to Alabama and and Cincinnati for the final spot. You mean to tell me, you mean to tell me that you can't see ESPN, and I hate to call them out by name, but you know how they operate. You mean to tell me that you can't see Cincinnati or, or ESPN that final Saturday trying to convince you that Alabama should make the playoff over Cincinnati? Because I can absolutely see it. Think about it. Oh, it's the SEC. Oh, they were ranked number two to Georgia. Of course they were going to lose. Why else? uh, If they had played anybody else in the country, they would have won. And so to me, I am just telling you, Cincinnati fans, don't get too comfortable. Don't get too confident. I still think it comes down to a little bit more than just winning out. The best thing you can do, keep winning out, keep winning games, keep winning convincingly like you did Saturday against SMU. But beyond that, what I would also say, you better hope these Big 12 teams beat each other up and they all end up with two losses. You better hope that Alabama maybe loses the Iron Bowl. I don't know. I'm not saying that'll happen, by the way. But I am just saying, I have seen so many, like, smart people, like people in the media 
saying, oh, Cincinnati's in. It's a done deal now if they win. And I'm just sitting there saying, man, I have watched this stuff for way too long. I know how the media operates. I know how the spin starts to work if Alabama loses to Georgia. And oh, by the way, there's always the possibility that Alabama wins. Then it does come down to Cincinnati versus the Big 12 champ. But I'm just saying, I don't think it's inconceivable. If I was a Cincinnati fan, root for chaos in the Big 12. All right. <laughs> I just did like nine minutes yelling and screaming about Cincinnati. Listen, I think that's really it from Saturday's college football college football stuff. I could do like a crazy rant on um, I could do a crazy rant on Ohio State, Michigan State. Ohio State obviously was up forty nine to nothing at halftime. Ohio State won uh, 56-7. to They got three different quarterbacks work, including Quinn Ewers, the uh, highly touted player who has not played prior to Saturday. I'm not going to do it. I said, on Saturday, I said on Friday's show, I said I think Ohio State wins and wins convincingly. They have the best wide receiver group in the country. Michigan State has the worst pass defense in the country. It's not even comparable. And so I tried to tell you that on Friday. I told you it would get ugly. It did get ugly. No, I don't think this is an indictment on Mel Tucker being overrated or he doesn't deserve the money that was offered to him by Michigan State. I don't think they should think about redoing the contract. I don't think anything like that. And I don't think, by the way, this makes Ohio State like – definitively better than everybody else. They had a very unique matchup advantage against Michigan State, and I will be very curious to see how they handle Michigan this coming weekend. Now, to be clear, I think they're better than Michigan. I think they're going to win. I don't trust Jim Harbaugh in a big game. But what you can't deny, Michigan has a top 10 pass defense. Michigan State had literally the worst pass defense in college football coming into this game. And so when I look at Michigan, um, we've seen with Ohio State, they struggle to run the ball against good run defenses, and if they can't run the ball, and if you can drop back in coverage, uh, you can limit this offense. Look at what Nebraska did to them. Look at what Penn State did to them uh, for at least a half to three quarters. So I'm not saying they, that Michigan lose or beats Ohio State this weekend. I'm just saying I'm not going to yell and scream and make a huge deal out of that Ohio State-Michigan State game because I told you it was basically going to go down like that. Did I think it was going to be 56-7? to I didn't but I did think it was going to be a blowout. All right, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take a quick break. I want to come back. I want to wrap on some college hoops. Uh, we have Feast Week this coming weekend. Uh, this coming week, excuse me, what I believe to be the greatest week of the college basketball calendar up until March when, of course, we get conference tournaments, NCAA tournament, etc. cetera. I want to take a quick break. I want to come back. I want to do a Feast Week preview, getting you ready for everything you need to know this coming weekend. All right, everybody, I am back. Going to be back, going to be back. And I do want to wrap, and I do want to switch gears, and I do want to talk some college hoops because this week coming up is what we call in college hoops Feast Week, right? It is the weekend in the lead-up to Thanksgiving and after Thanksgiving where we have all of these pre-conference tournaments. We have the Maui Invitational, the Battle for Atlantis, all of these random events, and I believe – that this is one of the two or three best weeks in sports on, on the sports calendar, right? You obviously have NFL all day Thursday, all day Sunday. You have college football all day Black Friday, all day Saturday. Thanksgiving night, you get the Egg Bowl. But college hoops is, I mean, this is just like, it, there's nothing better. Monday, 
day basketball. Tuesday, day basketball. Wednesday, day basketball. Thursday, you're with your family. You switch over. The Lions stink. You find another tournament to watch. Then all of a sudden, you got games until well after midnight Eastern. You can stay up late. You can enjoy it a little bit. There's not pressure. You don't got to get up to go to work in the morning. You can eat pumpkin pie. You can watch a random game at the Wooden Legacy at uh, Anaheim, California on Black Friday at 1 a.m. Eastern. This is like the best weekend, This one of the best weeks of the year in college basketball. And so what I want to do, I figured what I would just do really quickly is give you a quick rundown of the big tournaments, what you need to know, and what is important heading into Feast Week, the teams that I like, the teams that I don't, all that good stuff. I should mention a couple things. One, a couple tournaments have already been played. We had the Hall of Fame Classic on uh, uh, on Saturday and Sunday. Purdue beats Villanova for the title. Tennessee beats North Carolina for second place. And what I'll do is either Wednesday or probably early next week, I will do the full Feast Week recap where I go through all of these tournaments, what I saw, what I liked, what I didn't. But one, we've already had a few of these tournaments. And two, uh, what I would also say is this is just wall-to-wall basketball. I will try to be quick. I'm going to lay out who these tournaments are, who's playing, what you need to know, Obviously, if you have any questions, hit me up at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter, and I will do my best to get you information. Let's start with the first tournament that as of like three days ago, I did not care about, but it is the Fort Myers Tip-Off Classic. It is Monday and Tuesday. It is in Fort Myers, Florida. Uh, Shout out to Fort Myers. If you remember last year, they had the season opening game between Gonzaga and Kansas. I don't know if college basketball gets played if it wasn't for Fort Myers. Just being willing to say, come one, come all, sick, tired, hungry, whatever the Ellis Island term is. But anyway, Fort Myers Tip-Off Classic. The four teams there are Seton Hall, Ohio State, Florida, and Cal. What I would just say really quickly about this one. I talked about on Friday, Seton Hall, I believe, is a really good team. Depth, length, shooting, scoring at every position. They are one of the probably 12 to 15 best teams I've seen in college basketball. They open with an Ohio State team that really does need to bounce back and get some wins after losing to Xavier in their uh, Gavit Games game last week against, uh, against Xavier in the Gavit Games. The other side of the bracket, Florida and Cal. I'll say this, my boy Mike Wood, uh, not Mike Woodson, my boy Mike White, I have been critical of him. He has an older group this year. He took a lot of transfers, guys from smaller schools, guys that are grateful to be at the University of Florida. He took less of the four or five-star recruits that he struggled with. In a lot of ways, it's like a mini version of what has happened at Kentucky with John Calipari, where John Calipari's just got all these ultra-old players that love being at Kentucky, that play hard for him. I think Mike White's got the same thing going on. They play Cal in the opener. Cal basically isn't even a Power 5 team at this point. They are probably the worst Power 5, Power 6 team in college basketball this year. Mark Fox, it's a ticking time bomb there. But I like Seton Hall. They're the team to watch. I like them against Ohio State. They will probably play Florida in the championship. The Hall of Fame Classic is also on Monday and Tuesday. And this one, I believe, is really exciting for this reason. There are two teams that I am very curious to see in this event. It is a four-team event. Obviously, the winners on Monday will play Tuesday, but those two teams that I'm fascinated to see are Illinois and Arkansas. Illinois, we talked about a little bit on Monday or on Friday's show, excuse me. They lost to Marquette in the Gavit games. By the way, Marquette played really well in the Charleston Classic, making the final before they lose to St. Bonaventure. But Illinois now has Kofi Coburn back. It was a ridiculous three-game suspension to start the year. But what's interesting is What was interesting about Illinois in that Gavit games was that they struggled with turnovers. Can they take care of the ball? Can they be responsible? And what do they look like now that they have Kofi Coburn back? Arkansas, 
Woo Pig Suey, the Big Pig Invasion, just fascinated to see this team. And what I would say about Arkansas really quick, you know, I think it's going to be a process. I don't think it's going to be easy. I know they made the Elite Eight last year, but when you completely flip over your roster, I know Arkansas didn't. They bring back three or four really important players. J.D. Note is their leading scorer. Devo Davis, Jalen Williams were big contributors on that Elite Eight team last year. But you bring in four or five transfers that are going to play big roles. And so I, I wouldn't worry if they don't look great in this game or in this tournament. They did not look great the last time they took the court against Northern Iowa. But I also believe that they're a team with as much upside as anybody in the SEC fascinated to watch those two teams. Illinois plays Cincinnati in the first game. Arkansas plays Kansas State in the second game. Hope that we get a chance to see them in the championship game because that would be really interesting. Also Monday and Tuesday, an event that I will be at, an event that I'm not really totally positive how it all came together, but it is something called the Good Sam Empire Classic. So basically the Empire Classic. This is an event that historically has been played in New York. But I read this big confusing article about it. But it was supposed to be at Madison Square Garden. Then it got moved to Newark. One team pulled out. This team did this. Here's what you need to know. There are two games that are going to be played on Monday. And then on Tuesday. You know who's going to be playing? Number one Gonzaga and number two UCLA. So if I can give you any piece of advice... Tuesday night, clear your schedule, 10 p.m. Eastern, 7 Pacific. We get the number one team in the country, Gonzaga, versus the number two team in the country, UCLA. And that is a game where, obviously, it is a rematch of the Final Four last year. Gonzaga, Jalen Suggs ain't walking through that door. But obviously, look, Gonzaga looked really, really, really good in their game earlier this, this, this year against Texas. UCLA took care of Villanova. It will be a fascinating matchup. I think both of these teams are good enough to win a national championship. I have UCLA in my preseason Final Four. This is a team that returns everybody from the Final Four run. Added Miles Johnson, the transfer from Rutgers. So just a great, fun, exciting event. What you need to know here is that Gonzaga is playing UCLA on Tuesday night. Uh, really quick, I should mention, by the way, all of this is up at Aaron Torres online as well. So make sure you're paying attention there. Time to talk Maui. The Maui Invitational, baby. That's right. The biggest event of the week. It starts on Monday. It goes through Wednesday. The important part of this year's Maui Invitational, it's not actually in Maui this year. It is actually moving to Las Vegas because of the COVID restrictions in Hawaii. And I'll say this. It's actually kind of a little bit of a weak field for Maui. I know we think of Maui as Maui Jim and, and Bill Walton on a surfboard and Jay Billis in a, 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 a Hawaiian shirt. I get all that. What I would say is this is not the quintessential Maui Invitational field. The headliners here, Oregon, probably the second or third best team in the Pac-12. Houston coming off a of Final Four. We also have St. Mary's, which is kind of an interesting team. Notre Dame, Texas A&M, whatever. At the end of the day, I believe Houston is the best team in this field. Houston took care of Virginia a few days ago. They return a bunch of guys off that Final Four team, most notably Marcus Sasser. Also added Kyler Edwards, a transfer from Texas Tech. Houston, really interesting team. Really fun team. I expect them to win the Maui Invitational. Also, Oregon is in the event. Oregon, of course, made the Sweet 16 and has a bunch of transfers. Let's go to Wednesday, where a couple really interesting events happen on Wednesday. First of all, let's start with the battle for Atlantis. It goes Wednesday to Friday. And this is the single best event of the week, Battle of Atlantis, okay? It features Baylor, Michigan State, UConn, Syracuse, Auburn, Virginia, Tech, or Virginia Commonwealth, Arizona State, Loyola, Chicago. What I would say is of all of the matchups that we know are going to happen, all of the first-round matchups, UConn-Auburn in the opener might be the most interesting. 
UConn is 4-0 right now. They are absolutely steamrolling everybody. Now, Dan Hurley was not happy with the team's performance on Saturday. They beat Bingham by 24 points. Binghamton, excuse me, by 24 points. But every single one of their wins has been by 24-plus points. Auburn, of course, features the Twin Towers of Walker Kessler and Jabari Smith. Really interesting team. They struggled in their most recent game, only beating South Florida by six. But Auburn is 3-0. Those big guys have looked good. Jabari Smith averaging 13-8. and Walker Kessler has struggled a little bit early on. He is averaging uh, more points than rebounds, but just a really interesting team and a really interesting matchup. As far as the rest of the field, I'll say this. Baylor has been awesome this year, okay? So Baylor obviously lost many players off their national championship team. They lost Jared Butler. They lost Macy Oteague. They lost Davion Mitchell. Butler and Davion Mitchell were both uh, NBA draft picks last year, but despite it, they are 4-0. The reason why, a couple things. One, they have a, a, a sophomore, he might even be a redshirt freshman, his name is LJ Cryer, who was like a high school All-American, but he couldn't get on the court last year just because the ba- Baylor backcourt was so good. Credit to him, he waited his turn, he bought his time. He is now averaging 18.5 points per game through four games. They have a freshman named Kendall Brown averaging 15 a game. James Akinjo, a transfer from Arizona, averaging 10 a game. Right now they have three different players averaging double figures at Baylor and seven players averaging at least seven points per game. And again, they are just steamrolling everybody. This is the battle for Atlantis. They won their first game by 27, second game by 29, third game by 45 points, and their fifth game or their fourth game against um, against Stanford by 38 points. So Baylor is absolutely rolling. Baylor is on one side of the bracket. UConn plays Auburn. The winner of that game will play Michigan State, but I would expect a Baylor UConn championship game, really fun one in Atlantis. Speaking of Wednesday, this is a Wednesday-Friday event, so no games on Thanksgiving. Wednesday, NIT tip-off classic, Memphis, Xavier, Iowa State, Virginia Tech. That's why it's interesting. Memphis is one of the most fascinating teams in college basketball. Monty Bates is there. Jalen Duran is there. Memphis is playing well. Memphis has picked up a bunch of wins, but we haven't seen them play anybody yet. And so this is their first big test. They are currently 4-0. They just beat Western Kentucky by 12. They beat St. Louis by 16. This is the first big event. I'll say this in terms of Memphis. I give them credit. They look good so far. Amani Bates averaging almost 14 points per game. That's kind of incredible when you consider that he is a 17-year-old freshman playing college basketball. Jalen Duran averaging 15 points and 11 boards per game. How about this? In his most recent outing, 22 points, 19 rebounds against Western Kentucky. So this will be our first really good look at Memphis, who plays Virginia Tech on Wednesday night. Uh, In terms of the other side of the bracket, it is going to be Iowa State versus Xavier. I talked about Xavier last week. Really talented roster. They should be really good. This game is simply going to come down to, is this a a Xavier team that can consistently play well? Because if they are, they have a team that's good enough to make the NCAA tournament. Really interested to see what happens with them. Really quickly, let's rip through the rest of the the uh, the fields in uh, uh, champ. Uh, uh, excuse me, excuse me. I'm tripping on my own words here. In feast week, uh, first of all, we have the Advocare or the ESPN Events Invitational. That used to be the Advocare Invitational. That's the game that's played at Y World of Sports and Disney. Weird setup. Never very good crowds, but this is a great field. Kansas, Alabama, Miami, Iona. Never forget who Iona is coached by. 
Belmont, Drake, Dayton, North Texas. This event is Thursday and Friday as well as the championship game on Sunday. So no games on Saturday. But the obvious matchup here that we all hope to see is Kansas versus Alabama. We saw Kansas in the Champions Classic. They look great. My preseason national championship pick. Kaka, kaka. That's my team. My Jayhawks. Love Bill Self. Never said a bad word about them. They're playing Alabama, who obviously look. Alabama's really talented. Uh, Alabama has been. Uh, they've won every game that they've played. Struggled to barely hold on against South Alabama a few nights ago. Bounced back very nicely to take care of Oakland at home. Oakland of Michigan, by the way. Uh, Alabama's a really good team. So really curious about them. What's interesting about them, their opener. You know who they're playing? Iona and Rick Pitino. Remember what happened last year in the NCAA tournament? Uh, Iona, Iona played Alabama tough for about 35 minutes in that game before Alabama pulled away late. So that is worth keeping an eye on. Four players for Alabama averaging double figures right now. Seven players averaging at least seven points per game. Headlined by Jaden Shackelford. He's back after averaging 19 and a half. He is currently averaging 19 and a half points per game. He was their leading scorer last year. He declared and entered for the draft. Then he entered the transfer portal. Then he ultimately came back to Alabama. Finally, uh, real quick, uh, the rest of the events. Uh, we have a an event called the Bahamar Baha, Bahamas Championship, Maryland, Richmond, Louisville, Mississippi State. Really excited to see Mississippi State for the first time. They have a lot of talent that they acquired through the transfer portal. Garrison Brooks from North Carolina, uh, DJ Jeffries from Memphis, Shaquille Moore, who's playing really well from NC State. Also Louisville. Never forget, they're struggling right now. Chris Mack is out as part of a suspension for the Dino Gaudio stuff. On the other side of the bracket, Maryland's struggling. Talked about them. They're playing Richmond. Final event, the Wooden Legacy. It's Thursday, Friday. It's super late. Stay up late. They're like, I think it's a, a 10 p.m. Eastern and a 12.30 Eastern tip-off both nights. USC, San Diego State, Georgetown, and St. Joseph's. USC's in the top 25. They're really good. Evan Mobley's gone. His older brother, Isaiah Mobley's still there. Boogie Ellis, a Memphis transfer, is playing really well for them. And San Diego State is their usual really talented self. So anyway, that is a really long-winded preview of Champ Week or of Feast Week. But what I would also tell you is this. The events that you need to know, the events that you need to know, really, Maui Invitational Monday through Wednesday, the headliner there is Houston and Oregon. The battle for Atlantis starts on Wednesday, Wednesday to Friday. That is UConn, Auburn, Baylor, and Michigan State. The ESPN event has Kansas and Alabama. And there's a lot of other really good events I should mention as well. Friday night, stay up late, 10 p.m. Eastern, one-off game, Gonzaga versus Duke. I will be at that one as well. And I should mention, make sure you're following on social media at Aaron underscore Torres and at Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram. I'll have all sorts of videos, pictures, everything like that from the arena at T-Mobile Arena. I will be in Vegas for all of those events. All right, with that said, I think it's time for me to get out of here, people. I want to thank you guys for listening to today's Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. If you are not subscribed, please make sure to do so. iTunes, the Podcast Addict app, Podbean, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure that you are subscribed. Make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead and give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, all that good stuff. Make sure you're following on social media at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter, at Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com. Shout out to Torrent Craig. Shout out to Rachel Hates My Voice. I'll be honest. 
Don't know yet when the next episode of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast is coming. I will make sure to get you something by the end of this week. But that is all for today's show. Hope everybody has a great week. I'll be back sometime soon. Don't know when. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply